You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Hello and welcome to episode 6.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have Carla Ewert and Lisa Cordles for today's episode on the Evangelical Adoption Movement. Hi, Carla and Lisa. Hello. Hello. So before we get started today, let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Lisa, you first. Hi, my name is Lisa Cordles, and I'm an adjunct professor at Crown College. I am also working on my master's degree in literature and English and writing and all that at the University of St. Thomas, and feeling very old, actually, in that room, so <laughs> that's all right, though. It's been fun, and I am currently also trying to finish a novel, so we'll just see how it all turns out. Thanks. Carla? Um, hi, I'm Carla, and I am... Um... I have a master's degree in English, and I'm, I'm a freelance writer and editor. Um, I also uh, work for a Christian community called Solomon's Porch and um, stay at home on those the free time in between that with my kiddos. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a, a six-month-old daughter. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Thanks, Carla. I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am also an adjunct instructor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I teach English and sociology. And in my free time, I am theoretically finishing a dissertation on Shakespearean girlhood for Florida State University. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about um, a trend in evangelical circles of adoption, mostly international adoption, but some national adoption too, because uh, some abuse cases and cases of child death have been related to this Christian adoption community. Uh, these events have come up in the news recently, so we thought we would like to weigh in. Um, but before we get into the news article that we're covering this time, uh, Lisa, tell us a little bit about biblical precedent for adoption. Well, biblical precedent for adoption goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, I think the story most pointed to, and I say like the narrative or story, of course, is the story of Moses, who was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So there is certainly a precedent set very early on um, in Exodus. That being said, the cause of the fatherless if you would just simply Google that term in like Bible Gateway or something like that, you're going to get hundreds of verses about bringing justice to the fatherless and taking care of the orphans and pleading the widow's cause. This is something that we hear Exodus going forward. And a lot of times there will be a precursor. Well, when you were in Egypt and you were fatherless, so it talks about how it's almost it's almost a pay it forward, but in Old Testament language. However, the verse that you do hear most often, you know, sort of touted when it comes to adoption specifically is from the book of James. And it talks about uh, James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself. Um, and then it goes on from there. Now, um, Deuteronomy verses uh, chapter 10, verse 18 is also quoted very often, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so there's a constant refrain 
from Exodus going all the way through the Old and New Testament into the Psalms as well about how we are called as believers to care for the fatherless. Sometimes they won't use the word fatherless. They'll translate that orphan. It just depends on your translation. I was reading from the ESV, so it says fatherless. But um, there's definitely, it reads as a command that if you're living out your faith, and you know that the book of James is all about that. Faith without works is, of course, dead, as he says. Um, then you are caring for orphans. You are caring for widows. You are caring for those in need. And so, um, yeah, that's just a little taste of what's in the biblical word. But again, I encourage everyone listening to actually see how many verses are dedicated to this instruction. There's just there are literally hundreds. I just picked a few that are most often heard. Thank you. And now Carla's going to tell us a little bit about ways in which churches and other Christian organizations have tried to put those verses into practice in recent years. Carla? Um, yeah, it's actually uh, really interesting, the, the verses that you brought up, is that being an imperative for, for Christian faith, sort of the tell the telling point of Christian faith, because I think that's what's happened in, in the early uh, 2000s. Um, there was sort of a swing, it seems like, um, where there was sort of a response in the Christian community to the accusations that there, that everything that they had as far as morals were the things they were against, you know? So like um, they were supposedly against, or they were against um, homosexuality and abortion and all of these things. And all of the moral sort of um, standards were set up as things that they were against. And so there was a shift in the Christian world to talk about things that they were for. And adoption became one of those, those pet issues that, that they were for the orphan. Um, and both Rick Warren and his church picked that up as a refrain and the Southern Baptist convention put adoption on their agendas and, and asked congregants to prayerfully a, a consider adoption, um, which resulted in large numbers of family feeling caught, feel, families feeling called to adopt and, and going through on those those um, feelings of being called. Focus on the Family also made adoption a priority, and they focused a little more on um, domestic adoptions of, of older foster children, which is kind of an interesting, just an interesting um, juxtaposition to what the others were, were dealing more with international adoption and the orphan crisis. Um, it's also, that's how they often termed, termed their, their motivation to adopt, that there was an, an orphan crisis in the world and that Christians were responsible to respond, which just put everything in terms of sort of a, of a salvation metaphor, that there were these children out there who needed to be saved and it was up to Western Christians to do that. Um, so anyway, that kind of comes into play, I think, as we go further in the discussion. But the idea that there is this crisis and that Christians are called to come to the rescue, I think, is is interesting in terms of how the whole agenda has played out. Um, in recent years, though, in the last couple of years, probably the last three years, um, international adoptions especially have declined because several countries have, have made their policies more strict because there have been some pretty severe um violations of, of ethics, I guess is how you would say it, um, in these adoption situations, some of them being the abuse that we're going to talk about today um, and the Slate article that we'll look at, and some of it being um, just like at the, I think it was in 2010, um, a, a Christian group of Christians was trying to smuggle a bunch of Haitian children into the Dominican Republic so that they could be adopted. And, and it wasn't clear whether those children were really orphans or whether they had been um, taken from family. So those types of situations uh, have shut down a lot of international adoption, um, or at least slowed it significantly in very recent years. So that seems to be sort of the recent historical data on that, as I've found it. 
what I find interesting about that as well is that it's it's often promoted. And I just recently went to kind of a mom's seminar and there were like different breakout sessions. And so much of it was this drive toward adoption, 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 adoption. And if you weren't adopting, you should prayerfully consider that. And um, they talked a lot about how we're very blessed in this country. And what are you doing with that blessing? Like as a good steward of what you received, you should be sharing it with someone who doesn't have a family, who doesn't have home, that sort of thing. Um, it was a pretty strong thread throughout though. And I was very, I was kind of surprised by that because I had thought this was kind of tapering a little bit, this almost manifest destiny mandate. Mm-hmm. What I was happy to hear though, then this is the part that I think is very positive. At the group that I was at, they were promoting domestic adoptions here in the United States, and they were also promoting the adoption of older children, which I think everyone listening knows that um, once a child hits the age of six, getting them adopted is extremely difficult, and they'll often just bounce around from foster home to foster home to foster home. And I actually didn't think that was true anymore. But now that we're in the process of adopting someone who's older, you know, and I talk with their social worker, you know, once a month we meet with them. Yeah, that is true. Once they hit the age of six, if they don't have somebody willing to adopt them, they'll just kind of keep getting shuffled around until they time out of the system. And that's sort of the best the system has to offer. So I, I do, I do think the one thing I see coming out, not just the one thing, but one thing I do see coming out of this, you know, kind of push that is very positive is children who might not otherwise be adopted into loving homes are being adopted. And and just shining a light on that issue, I think, is good. So I just kind of want to point out that one positive before we kind of get into some other things. Great. Thanks, both of you, uh, for covering some background for us. Uh, So before we get into that slate piece, um, there are two more converging pieces of background that I need to talk about just a little. First, I want to mention Michael and Debbie Pearl's child training manual, their words, not mine, uh, to train up a child, which of course takes its title from uh, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, This book is originally published by Michael and Debbie Pearl's ministry, No Greater Joy Ministries, in 1994. Since then, uh, over 600,000 copies have been published. I think almost uh, 630, 640,000 copies are currently in print. And this book is incredibly controversial, because of its methods and also because of its association with several uh, news-making deaths of internationally adopted children. Seven-year-old Sean Paddock in 2006, four-year-old Lydia Schatz in 2010, and the case we're going to discuss a little bit more closely in a minute, 13-year-old Hannah Williams in 2011. Uh, So part of the controversy stems from the fact that in To Train Up a Child, Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pearl advocate using 8th-inch PVC plumbing supply line as the rod of the Bible verse uh, to discipline children, very, very young children, uh, whom some people will call infants. We'll talk a little bit more about their methods later, but families who have adopted internationally 
uh, have used these methods on their children to disastrous effects. So the book is, uh, is kind of stigmatized at this point. Uh, the other piece of background I need to cover a little bit is to talk about Catherine Joyce, who's the author of 2013's The Child Catchers, Rescue, Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption. We're going to cover an excerpt from her book today. Uh, she's no stranger to evangelical Christian subcultures. She also wrote 2009's Quiverful, Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement, and uh, so Joyce is, is very interested in uh, in evangelical Christianity as a sort of social experiment, as an American subculture. And um, she's been criticized by people both inside and outside of Christianity as um, as kind of a smear campaigner, really. Um, people have criticized her research methods, said that her citations are hard to find. Um, people who she claims to have interviewed have said that they never spoke to her. So, um, please do not think that we as a podcast are endorsing um, every single thing we're talking about today. Um, except for the Bible verses that we quote, nothing is gospel here, but we feel like it's important to talk about this issue. So uh, now let's get into uh, Joyce's slate piece. Well, first of all, the book To Train Up a Child is extremely controversial. Um, probably some of the high, you know, so many copies in print have to do with its controversy. I'm thinking of another book that came out about parenting. Um, I think it was The Cry of the Tiger Mom. Are you guys familiar with that one? Um, and that was, am I, I think I'm quoting the title wrong, but um, that something, was awesome. Something about t- Tiger Mother, the Amy Chua book. I can, I yes, can link to yes. it. Yes, definitely. That was also very controversial. Um, and so I think when a book comes out that does – say something about parenting in a way that our westernized viewpoint is not used to, there is always going to be that reaction. Uh, so I just want to get that out of the way. I think there will always be a reaction. However, the book to train up a child and just what it's telling you to do to children is outright abuse and it's abusive. Um, I personally have read much of it. I've heard about it. I don't know anyone who uses its techniques um, because anyone that I talk to who claims to be a Christian or even doesn't like that, maybe doesn't like the word Christian people I know who are parenting, who are raising up children that call themselves followers of Christ uh, feel that the techniques in here are abusive. And yes, they do um, advocate for hitting children with objects. Um, that is something that I personally uh, think is extremely wrong. Um, and there's a quote from the article from a Michael Ramsey that it's truly an evil book. I'm not going to go as far as to say the book is evil. I mean, information is information. It's what you do with it. Uh, however, the techniques are, are abusive. And I personally feel like that needs to be said. It needs to be discussed. And also, too, I just think the book needs to um, be cast in the light of what it is. Um, and there are, and, and also this verse that the whole premise is based on is being uh, misinterpreted, grossly misinterpreted. Good. Um, Can you talk more about yeah, that? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, this this whole idea 
that Proverbs is telling you to beat your child and, you know, train them up with this rod is just absolutely bad exegetical work. We we should say quickly before we move on <laughs> yes. that we're talking about um, two different verses at once. Uh, yes. The one I mentioned, Proverbs 22, 6, yes. train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, yep. he will not depart from it. And then a different verse, Proverbs thirteen twenty four. whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Thank you, Victoria, because the, this whole movement to train up a child is based on both of those verses, actually. And, and they lean heavily on the second one. Um, but in my opinion, it's just, and this is, you would, you would hear this from anybody. Anybody who's even taken one seminary class will tell you that they're misinterpreting the verse. I mean, what, the, what that verse is talking about is it's talking about living out the Shema, and that's Deuteronomy 6-4, and the verses that follow Deuteronomy 6-4. When it says um, to pass on what you know about God to your children, that's what they're talking about in Proverbs and good exegetical work going back to the original, you know, language studies and all that stuff. You can do all of that. But what they're talking about is how we are called as followers of God to talk to our children about God and teach our children about God so that they do not depart from the way of the Lord. And what they're talking about is raising up a child who's has knowledge of God that you've passed on to them. And that's what they're talking about. And so to me, this whole idea that this is all about discipline is just absolutely ludicrous. It's not about discipline at all. It's about what Deuteronomy says. It says, talk about God when you're laying down, when you're at home, when you're walking with your children. You know, there's that whole list in Deuteronomy of how we're supposed to pass on to our next generation, which is most obviously our children, but it's not just the children. It's that whole new generation of believers and followers, the way of the Lord. Like, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to live that out? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to live that out? That's what Proverbs is promoting, that if you train your child up in the word, in, okay, for a New Testament word, the law, I know that that word has connotations, but when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about the spirit of the law, which is to make people free from sin and to live this life that's flourishing before God. And so, you know, I'm talking about the intent and purpose of the law, not legalism. I just want to be clear about that. Um, and so they're talking about training someone up so that they follow God and they don't fall into like these pitfalls that Proverbs is always talking about, you know, and that's the point. The point is to live this life flourishing, following your call in freedom before God and not being drugged down by your sin. Of course, we all fall short of the glory of God. But to say that this, these verses are advocating this like extremely harsh abuse of discipline to me, it just bugs the heck out of me because it's just bad exegesis. And I just, I can't stand that. And I personally feel like, and I, I mean this, and this is my personal opinion. I want to be very clear about that. You are judged by what you say. That's why when, you know, you know, all those verses about, you no, know, not everybody should want to be a teacher because you will be judged by what you say. I take it that seriously. If I write something or I talk about something, I pray about it first. I seek the Lord and his guidance. I don't just go out there. And I just feel like this whole movement is just very, very, very shallow in that piece of it. You know, are the people who are pushing this movement, the pearls, are they understanding that 
if you lead people astray, you are judged by that. That's what the New Testament tells us about teachers. And, I, and I'm saying this for me personally. I don't put this mandate on anybody else. This, this is how I interpret that piece of scripture. Because to me, it's very clear that we are not to lead our little ones astray. And as teachers, we're judged by our words and what we say because we're we're supposed to be promoting the gospel and God. And so this kind of thing upsets me because, and you can hear that I'm emotional about it. This is a very emotional issue. This movement and this to train up a child stuff, it's, it's basically giving people a license and an excuse to just carry out their sadistic behaviors on children. And to me, that is the epitome of what Christ is talking about when he says, you know, if you lead one of my little ones astray, it'd be better that you were not born or you have a millstone around your neck. I mean, mm-hmm. I get feisty because you're talking about, you're talking about destroying someone's soul here. And that, that is, that is deep damage. That's what abuse does to people. And that's what they're promoting. And, and I just, I really pray that um, people will look into this more deeply before they just take up its teachings because you know, oh, my child's misbehaving. Well, I started beating them and they quit misbehaving. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah that's the easy route. That's that's the easy route, I guess. You know, I mean, yeah, good. Yeah, I'm sure, sure glad that technique worked. But you do realize you're destroying your child's soul. You do understand that. You know, great. I'm so glad your life as a parent got easier. Life as a parent isn't supposed to be easy. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm going to be quiet now. But <laughs> I just... I really think that, feel strong. Go ahead, yeah, Carla. No, I agree, Lisa. I think that that, that can tie, tie back into our, our discussion of adoption as well, because when you adopt, especially if you're adopting from, you know, another culture or even like in your case, an older child who already has a history, uh, you know, of what they've experienced, um, you can feel baffled. I have two, you know, biological children, and I feel baffled all the time as to what is the best way to 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 help them become the women that they want to be. Um, you know, I, I struggle with those, with those issues of, of how to help them, you know, be creative and come into their own and all of those types of things. And then I was brought up much more in a, in a sort of disciplinary type atmosphere. My parents were not overtly, um, committed to this idea of crazy discipline, but the, the culture in which I grew up was very much involved in, in the idea of, of self-deprivation and self-sacrifice. And those were how you, if it, if it hurts, you're probably righteous, that kind of idea. Um, and I, I feel very strongly that that's not how I want my children to be raised. I don't want them to think that their life in Christ is primarily one of discipline. I think that things like creativity and um, creativity and passion and those types of things are probably much better indicators of, of, a life that's full, <laughs> you know, than, than self-discipline. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for discipline and, and for self-discipline. There is. But I don't think that that, I don't know how or when that became our primary indicator for somebody who is raising their child according, according to Christian values. And this type of thing has me, um, it makes me pull back from the label Christian very often. In fact, I have a hard time even saying I'm bringing my children up by Christian values because this is how I associate them. Where when I look at it really, and when I look at the life of Christ, I would say that things like passion and curiosity and kindness and love and empathy, those are the things that, that a life in Christ could be characterized and probably be more Christian than the things that we've been taught. Self-denial, discipline, sacrifice, those types of things. But anyway, back to my point about adoption. You bring in a child who, who, has, who has already lived in a different 
type of environment or who has suffered some very severe things and you bring them into a home where this type of discipline is used and, and their, their um, experiences have led them to certain types of behaviors that these families then call sin and they associate sin with with the body often there's still that dualism in this kind of thought process that sin is is located in the body and therefore if you can abuse the body if you can beat the body you can beat out the sin that's this idea and and so these children are brought into these homes suffering already from whatever whatever neglect or abuse that they've that they've been dealt and and then their behaviors are interpreted as sin and treated as such it, it's just so it's so disheartening to me that, that we've ever decided that that's, that that's a Christian response. Um, so, you know, back to our adoption thing. These children um, and the people who adopt them, I think there's so much to be learned about a different culture or, or a different way of thinking or a different, that these experiences could be quite rich and quite um, enriching to both the children and the parents, and often are, often are. I, I, I don't want to get so negative that I feel like, every adoption situation is this way. Often I've seen, I mean, I have very good friends who've adopted um, internationally and they are so involved in their children's, um, in their children's, first of all, helping their children overcome some of their challenges that they have and then going back to their birth countries and helping them connect with their cultures and those types of things. And I've seen parents do this in such an amazing way. Um, So I don't want to go all negative, but I, I just have this strong reaction to the idea that, that we would treat, um, the psychological issues that we all have <laughs> as sin rather than as, as something that we can heal from. I don't know. I'm kind of, yeah, really, I, I just think really struggle <laughs> when it comes to parenting, Carla, I do agree with you that sometimes you are at a loss because children are so different. And so with my 11 year old, I can give her that mom look and she'll burst into tears, have like a truth Tourette's moment, confess everything crying, you know, where with mm-hmm. my daughter, Lexi, who's nine, I have to have a totally different parenting style. And now I have a 19 year old that has come from this, this horrific background of mm-hmm. being bounced around in foster care and just abuse as well, who I have to parent completely different th- than those two. And I do yeah. think that's the challenge. And I think that's why people go to yes. books like this because I agree. Yeah, that was my point that I got too emotional to ever get back to is that I think that you're exactly right. When you get overwhelmed like that, you want to find a system that will work. And you do, you resort back to, you know, that's why I feel like that's the only way I can see people resorting into a book like this is that, okay, well, it works. Well, yeah, like you said, it tends to be the easy way uh, rather than deciding what your child, what each child needs, uh, I guess, just beating them into submission. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm so this, this book and this article was just so upsetting to me, but yes, I agree. It is upsetting because honestly, Carla, I think you'd, and Victoria, I'm sure you'd agree as well. It's not parenting. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it's it's not parenting. Anybody, okay, this is going to sound awful, but it's a good analogy. Anyone can beat an animal into submission. You raise your hand, they'll flinch. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, and it's the same thing with children, but is that what you want? Is that what you actually desire? God, I hope not. And yeah. if it is what you desire, then you need help. I just want to be really clear about that. I am trying to be very understanding that when people are abusers, they have issues as well. And mm-hmm. I just want to encourage anyone who might think, okay, maybe I am being a little abusive. You need to talk to someone about that and maybe learn some parenting skills that aren't abusive because maybe you were never taught them. I don't know. But um, Carla, it's, and I'm sure Victoria would agree as well. Like uh, just as a parent, this upsets me because mm-hmm. people are doing this and 
like Victoria said very early on, to disastrous results. And that's just the physical stuff you're hearing about, let alone mm-hmm. the psychological and emotional damage that you're you're not hearing about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think you're you're right, Lisa. And some of the things the two of you have been saying about looking at emotional causes and and treating children as individuals, um, I think this is where to train up a child fails because it is a very one size or appears to be the pearls say it's not. But in its uses, the book appears to be a very one size fits all method, um, which doesn't suit children with emotional problems. So um, let's get a little deeper into the slate piece in our last few minutes, though. Um, can you can I just add one thing, Victoria? Um, you said that, you know, you make a really good point that, you know, one size fits all doesn't work for children with emotional problems. I will go further than that. That doesn't work for children, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, and um, I'm sure, Carly, you understand this. They come from the same gene pool. They're completely different personalities. And oh, then totally. if you bring yeah. in, and then you bring someone who's adopted into that mix you have this whole different dynamic. So, I mean, to me, this whole idea that one size fits all for any parenting style is just absolutely ludicrous. If you are day to day living it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so we need to transition really quickly into the Joyce piece. Um, Carla, can you take us to one specific passage or part of the article that you'd like to discuss? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is it? Do we need to give kind of an overview of the article, or do you want to skip that for now? Sure. Why don't you go ahead and do an overview? Okay. Um, so the article is called Hannah's Story, and it's about uh, an adoptee from from Ethiopia. She was adopted when she was ten uh, to a family, I believe, in in Washington State, um, and they uh, already had, I think, eight children. And she was adopted into that family along with another Ethiopian uh, boy, I think, who was eight, and he was he was uh, deaf. Um, so Hana lived in this family, um, and what happened eventually was that uh, after three years of abuse and and the use of these types of methods, locking her in closets, beating her with a plumbing pipe, um, and those types of things, she uh, eventually died. Um, was out in the back, put it left out in the backyard in, um, 40 degree rainy weather in a short sleeve shirt. And anyway, basically died of hypothermia. Um, while, while during her struggle, some of her family watched and, um, it's a very, very tragic and sad story. And I, I'm certain that most adopted situations are not this awful, but, um, anyway, in the, in the process of investigating her death, um, they found a book, to train up a child. And that's where this all comes together. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess the story obviously was, was quite upsetting to read and, and I'd heard about it in the news and remembered that, but to read it again and to read, um, exactly what this child went through was just so heartbreaking. And I think the part of, of, um, the part of the article that kind of got me was, um, what we've talked about a little bit already, but this focus on breaking a child's will uh, to raise perfectly obedient children. This is toward the end where she's talking about some of the subculture, the homeschool. And I'm not, again, not all homeschool is this way, but um, this sort of subculture that the family was a part of the Williams family who had adopted Hannah um, and talking about their desire to break a child for obedience um, and those types of things and, and using um, and calling psychological issues sin um, and treating them as sin rather than as something that that can be healed and that that was caused uh, by by whatever trauma the child had been through, I think those were the things that i that i that struck me and again I, I feel like those being struck by those was part partly because of my own upbringing and the world that I was in um, 
where I guess sin for me, the word sin, I really struggle with. And I, I would say, you know, my biblical interpretation is probably looser than, than both of yours. And I, I struggle with the idea of sin at all. I, I obviously, you know, we, we do things that are less than healthy for ourselves and, and you can call that sin, but this idea of labeling a child's actions and, and struggles as sin, and then attempting to, to correct that behavior with discipline to me, just there's, there's not a, there's not a healthy way for that to happen. Um, so that, that hit me. I've, I've just, I have enough friends who were brought up in these ways that the different things that, that normal people struggle with, whether they be sexuality or, um, you know, lying or the different things that, that people do or struggle with that they were so demeaned and, and beaten and, and abused over these types of basic human struggles that they're forever damaged in their spirits. As you guys were saying, um, you know, that it's just so, so hard for me to think about these. Um, I, I guess I wish we could come up with a way to see children as, as not totally depraved and not all these other things, but as, as fellow strugglers, you know, as fellow strugglers who are working to understand their best selves and, and those types of things. Um, so I guess that's where it hit me. Is is the idea that 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 there's a Christian movement that believes that breaking a child's will and breaking a child is is the way to to create a healthy adult? Yeah, I Carla, I couldn't agree with you more. I get emotional about this article as well, and I did. I had heard about it before too, but then rereading it in prep today, it just it just made me angry. podcast sounds unevenly edited at this point or more unevenly edited than usual. That's probably because it is uh, due to unforeseen scheduling conflicts. Lisa had to uh, leave the show in the middle, so now it's just Carla and I. Uh, We're sorry about that. Thanks for sticking with us. So, Carla, let's get a little deeper into the Slate article itself. Can you point us to a specific theme or a specific passage that you'd like to discuss more? Um, I think going back to some of our talk, our discussion about adoption in general and the adoption movement, um, there's a section um, toward the toward the end of of Hannah's section um, because it goes on to talk about other adoptees, um, other uh, Egyptian adoptees specifically. But toward the end of Hannah's section, there's a paragraph that talks about um, training and adoption and sort of preparing adoptive families, and and that seems to be. Uh, as I've as I've looked at other other things about the evangelical adoption movement, there seems to be often a kind of a real rush toward toward making this happen, and and I think the the reason for that is the sort of crisis language that surrounds the movement and this idea that that the, that these people are saving children from these awful scenarios, and so there's an urgency to it, and they want it to happen quickly, and in some cases that that may be the case, but I think often you're in order to have the adoptions be successful, um, it's very important that there be training. And that was discussed deeply in this, in this, um, article about Hannah, because here, this was, here was this family, you know, in Washington, the Williams who had six kids of their own and then adopted two high needs children from Ethiopia. Uh, one was Hannah, who was an older girl, um, you know, with, who had already done 10 years of her living, um, without, without, 
a, a forever family for as far as we know. And then, and then the other boy who was deaf and, and so they adopted these high needs children without very much training as to what might be required of them or what, what kind of issues they would run into or, or what kind of, um, processes they would need to go to to help go through to help these children adjust. And so rather than having that training, these kids come in to this incredibly um, intense disciplinary household. And that's how their that's how their issues are approached is through discipline rather than through any sort of training or or counseling or anything that might have actually been helpful. And um, I have a, a good friend who's adopted um, children internationally. And, and she talks often about the counseling that they've done and the different issues that come up that are, that are, um, typical adoptive issues, you know, issues with bonding and issues with, um, with anxiety, the children that struggle with anxiety and how they deal with that through counseling and those types of things. And I think, um, their situation has been difficult, but very healthy overall. And so I guess that, um, all of this discussion makes me think, um, some of the urgency around the Christian or the evangelical adoption movement. Um, it would be nice if there could be some training surrounding it, I guess, to maybe, maybe alleviate some of the issues that they're, the people are going through. So anyway, that's a, that was one thing that as I read, I thought, Oh, you know, it struck me as maybe a solution in some ways. Yeah. I I think that you're right. And, some of the people who are quoted in the article do um, speak to that issue. They talk about the fact that only um, 10 hours of minimum training are required. Um, I think that's like the bare minimum regulation, which which seems kind of ridiculous to me. Yeah, and it can be done online. It's not like it's face-to-face counseling. It's 10 hours of, you know, clicking through a, a tutorial, <laughs> you know, um, which just seems ludicrous, yeah. And And like you said, I'm... I, I do understand on a certain level that this is um, a crisis situation and, and should also be treated as a spiritual crisis situation. There are children in you know horrible um, living conditions who aren't getting a lot of care, and we should um, work to solve those issues and I understand that people want to do them quickly but you have to you have to prepare and you have to treat the child as a whole person um, many of the issues that we discussed in our previous uh, episode in episode 6.1 on Christian feminist parenting the things that Sheila and Ford were talking about um, treating children as individuals uh, treating them um, as, as complex, nuanced people, um, these kinds of things seem to be really missing um, from from this lack of regulation, and that's really concerning to me. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, I agree, and I think it, it puts you. It puts the It's it's you kind of create this um, generalized. You know, we're the savior. It's the it's the other idea. You know, that we're the savior and you're the needy other, and. Um, it generalizes it all into some sort of a flat, like you said, depersonifies or somehow that's probably not the right word, but you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I agree. So the issue in the article that I wanted to talk about is something that you alluded to earlier in the show, which is fear of the body and fear of the physical, um, particularly fear of the, uh, the feminized, uh, sexualized or, or pre-sexualized physical. 
when the beginning of the article talks about Carrie Williams, uh, Hannah's adopted mother, um, it talks about her sort of fixation with issues of physical modesty that we've discussed on this show before, uh, says that she thinks that Hannah's uh, hypothermic paradoxical undressing, the, the idea that people who suffer from hypothermia um, paradoxically think that they are hot and therefore take off their clothes, uh, Carrie Williams reads this undressing as willful immodesty and, and covers her up. Um, that idea to me just like to to reduce something so uh, complex with so many um, scientific, psychological, emotional roots uh, to just sin, um, as you were saying earlier, is just, I I mean, I I can barely comprehend how that association works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, um, she she thinks that this undressing is immodest to the point that she doesn't want her children looking at it, yet um, she charges her boys to punish Hannah with the plumbing line by hitting her on the behind um, in a previous instance when she'd also taken off her clothes. So these things don't track. They don't match up. The only thing that those sets of behaviors have in common um, is a sort of uneven female responsibility for sin. They they just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I also thought, you know, it's so strange that the the modesty was an issue, right? She didn't want her other children to see Hannah undressing, and yet she was okay with them watching her struggle and fall and hit her head and all of the things that she went through in the, her last moments, you know? Uh, she was, Mrs. Williams uh, apparently was okay with them observing that, you know, um, that violence. And so uh, that seems like such a strange thing to me, too, that, that, somehow our morality has has become so focused on on the sexuality of our bodies but not on the violence that that we can <laughs> inflict on each other um anyway uh, it's an interesting to me hang up in morality um that seems to seems to miss maybe the real point um i guess yeah, I, I think that's a really excellent point to talk about, you know, when, when we focus on that, what are we not focusing on? What are we not equating as mm-hmm. um, as, as inappropriate or, or sinful or what have you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Um, and the, the last thing I wanted to mention about this fear of the body is um, when Hana is initially adopted, um, she is older than the Williams thinks she's going to be. This is not uncommon in international adoptions. Uh, Agencies tell American families specifically that children are younger than they actually are because um, younger children are are more likely to be adopted or considered cuter or considered um, sort of less damaged, um, easier to to train and adjust, less tied to their own cultures, and, and these things are, are considered positives in a lot of circles. So um, H- Hannah is three or so years older than, she, uh, than the Williamses are told she's going to be, and Carrie Williams remarks, uh, we thought we were adopting a little girl, not a half-grown woman. And and while I understand that um, that 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 would be um, maybe a confusing or frustrating thing if you think you're getting one thing and you get another, 
Um, that phrase just really sort of stuck in my brain the first time I read the article um, right after it came out a few months ago. I thought, like, that phrase, uh, we thought we were getting a little girl, not a half-grown woman. Like, the sort of content that you, contempt, excuse me, that you hear in the latter half of that phrase was just really disconcerting to me. Like, why is that a bad thing other than, like, it wasn't what you expected? It's the idea that, like, being a half-grown woman is in itself scary or bad or negative. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, it opens the door to sexuality, right? I mean, it's that idea that a, a little girl is somehow an innocent and a half-grown woman is verging on on some sort of sexual awakening, which is dangerous. Um, and again, just equating our sexuality with danger and with, with, um, you know, especially in the female body. And we've talked about this in other arenas and other analysis, you know, analyses. And I, I just, the idea that it was applied this in this, um, tangible situation, you know, it's something that I've looked at in literature over and over again, but to have it applied and to see it play out in real life for this, this girl, um, this kind of contempt for the female body and for female sexuality as a threat, um, in whatever way it is, <laughs> is just so, is so disheartening that these things aren't just theories. They're not just things that we look at and say, Oh, that's something that, you know, that happened once upon a time or whatever. It's, it's actually something that we deal with on a regular basis. Um, or at least are still, are still dealing with from time to time. Yeah. And that, I think that what you're saying um, is part of why that particular part of the article really resonated with me, too, is that I, I understand, like you said, that sort of cultural prejudice. I know that it exists. I know that it's really deeply embedded. But I don't really think of it as something that is um, is active in current life in sort of such blatant ways. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the ways that um, sexism against the female body is enacted today are, are quieter and, and sort of not as easy to pin down. So maybe that's why I'm shocked by this. Yeah. Yes. That it's just so blatantly, it's just so blatant. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, is there anywhere else in the article you would like to go or should we uh, go into recommendations now? No, I think that was most of what I, I had to say about it. It was like we said before, an incredibly difficult thing to, to read, you know? Um, and uh, just, yeah, it's just very sad. I don't, I don't know that I have anything um, really key. I guess there was one other thing um, they were talking to um, uh, the director of the AAI, which I'm trying to remember exactly what that stands for. But she was talking about um, these failed adoptions that had happened. And she said, I wish I had a crystal ball and could say, okay, if we place these 100 kids, these 85 are going to thrive and do well, and these 15 aren't. I wish I could tell which of those 15 might be better off staying in Ethiopia, she says. That's the choice. You take a chance or you leave everybody there. That's the moral dilemma. And I, I felt like that was a, a good point and that, you know, that's her struggle. And I can see that being such a struggle is that, you know, some of your placements are not going to do well and some of it's not going to work. But like she says, then does that mean you just don't do it? You don't try? 
Um, but like she said, 85, 85 of the kids are going to do great and they're going to be in great caring homes. And then they're going to be 15 that aren't. And, um, I don't know. That's just, that's just such a, such a dilemma, I guess. Um, and I suppose the dilemma, anytime you, you reach out to do, to do good, there's always the risk of, of there being negative results as well. And I don't know, I, in some ways I tend to be paralyzed by things like that. Um, but I, I guess it's good that not everybody is so, yeah, absolutely. And I, I really did feel for the director um, when I was reading that section as well. And I thought, um, I, you know, I'm not sure even that increased regulation would be that crystal ball. Like, like how much would you have to increase regulations? What would they look like to to mm-hmm. change those numbers and, and to make that 85% higher? I'm, I'm not sure we can even know. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I think at the very least... Um, more training and, and required counseling for the parents and the, and the children. Um, it just seems like that would be a no brainer regulation. And then they were talking also about regulations on family size because there were these, a lot of times the failed adoptions were in very large families who already had six or eight children of their own and then adopted more. Um, so, you know, maybe there are some regulations. I mean, you can't say you have too many kids already, but you know, that kind of looking at, at the home a little more closely, um, and seeing what, what the, what the environment is like, but, um, I don't know. It, yeah. Nothing about it is easy. <laughs> for yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I absolutely think that family size, particularly in this subculture that we've been discussing, um, mm-hmm. is a key point. Um, as I said earlier, um, Catherine Joyce's first famous book also about Christian subcultures is about quiverful families that have as many children as they think God calls them to. And there is some degree of overlap between these quiverful families and families that tend to um, adopt a lot. They're negatively called in some circles child collectors. And Mm -hmm. I think that's basically what they are. Um, You get to a point when you've got 10 or 12 or 15 children in one home where even if you're the best mom or dad in the world, you can't be giving each child, you know, a large amount of individual attention. Mm -hmm. And to me, these um, quiverful adherents who say that children are a blessing from God and that's why they have as many as they can. I mean, if you can't give your child the kind of individual attention he or she needs to treat them as an individual, then you're not treating children, you know, as a blessing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a tricky thing. I, I know a family, you know, who has, I think 13, um, and, and they were amazing parents. And I, and I would say, man, their children were all incredibly healthy and wonderful. So it's hard to ever generalize one way or the other. Um, but I do think, I do think paying attention to the, to the discipline styles in the households and, and that adoptive adopt adoption agencies do have the responsibility to look into that kind of thing. Um, and, and it, it crosses all kinds of lines there though, then with religious freedom and, you know, I don't know, it's, it's a tricky, it's definitely a tricky spot, but I think, um, at the very least, some sort of regulation on counseling and, and drawing attention to the fact that this is not sin. <laughs> this is psychological adjustment on both parts, you know, on the parents and the ch- children. I mean, bonding, parental bonding is an, is an incredibly nuanced and, and um, 
interesting thing. You know, it is, it is, you think it's a natural thing to bond with your children and it is and for the most part, but, but especially I've talked to other adopted families who have talked about bonding as really a process that it's not something that just happens because somebody lives in your home. In fact, sometimes that's a reason not to bond with, with a child, you know, when relationships are difficult regardless. And then when you live with someone, you deal with all of their little issues. And I mean, I have my own children whom I bonded with naturally and love dearly. And there are still, some very hard days, you know, where I think, ah, oh, this is this is not the way I want to spend my day. I would like to do something else. And without that sort of bond, you know, if you can't build that through through counseling or through whatever whatever means you're you're able to, I don't know how you go about living together, you know. Um, anyway, so I just think at the very least, some kind of stricter regulation on on counseling and on training would make a difference. Um, but again, I'm I'm speaking as a very, uh, very uh, as an amateur for sure. As a as a, <laughs> I don't know much about the field at all. But in my very tiny bit of reading, that sure seems like it could help. Yeah, I agree, and I I do want to put out a call to our listeners. Uh, I'm sure many of you are more involved in this process than we are. Um, if you've read more, know more, or if you've experienced um, adoptions like these personally, please. Uh, talk to us. Write in uh, to our email address, christianhumanistpodcast at gmail.com, or our Facebook page. Tell us about your experiences. Tell us about regulations and uh, steps of adoption that you've gone through. We'd really like to learn more about this process. Uh, so please reach out to us if you have more information than we do. And now is, I think, the point of the show show where we need to segue into recommendations. So, uh, Carla, what do you have for us this week? Um, I found as I was looking at, um, the, one of our articles, I found, a, a one of the comments, there was a very insightful comment about, um, the hermeneutics and stuff that is used in the, in, um, the, the book, uh, to bring up a child, uh, the Pearl's book. And they actually, this, this group put together a response, a hermeneutical, um, response sort of to the theology involved in, in to train up a child. And, um, it's just really, uh, I haven't read the whole thing, but I just kind of clicked on it just to go through it a little bit. But anyway, I think it's worth a read, um, to talk about it's, um, it's called parenting in the name of God. And it just kind of is a, is a, a response to the Pearl's, um, training, child training methods. Again, that's their words, child training. So it, the website for that, um, it's kind of, I'm not sure exactly how to say it. Um, it's Cida. That's okay. You don't Cida. have to just send me the link and I'll post it in our show notes. Okay, great. So I will send that. And, and yeah, so that's the thing I thought that would be worth. I would like to spend more time reading it and understanding it. Um, and then I think uh, I just Googled Catherine Joyce to get more information on what she has done. And, um, I mean, like you said, she's kind of a, of a, um, there's some debate around her style and her whatever, but I thought she had quite a bit of interesting stuff in some other articles on the adoption um, movement and those types of things. So I would say um, there was one she wrote in 2011 called the Evangelical Adoption Crusade uh, that I thought was pretty insightful and, and interesting to read. So we will link to both of those. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, and I also have two links, uh, two recommendations to give both associated with, um, recovering from 
the kind of restrictive uh, conservative Christian subculture that we've been talking about. Um, the first is Homeschoolers Anonymous, which is um, a blog for um, former Christian homeschoolers who have decided not to raise their own children the way they were raised for various reasons. Um, we, we've now reached a point sort of chronologically where the first generation of kind of moral majority raised uh, children um, in, in a period of American Christian history where a lot of um, isolationism and a lot of dominionism and a lot of anti-government sentiment kind of came together to create um, a, a very restrictive, very isolation, isolationist movement. Uh, the children of that movement are now adults having children of their own, and so we're seeing a lot of backlash in the form of blogs like Homeschoolers Anonymous and the second blog that I'll recommend, which is No Longer Quivering, um, which, as its title suggests, is uh, a recovery blog for former uh, quiverful kids and teens. So we'll link to those. Uh, check them out. There are some very moving uh, stories there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, Carla, do you have anything else to say, or can I close us out? I think you can close us out. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you want to say hi, or if you have a reading recommendation or topic for a future show, drop us a line at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to see show notes from this or any other episode, check that out at christianhumanist.org. Uh, and please tune in in two weeks for an episode on Rachel Held Evans's book, The Year of Biblical Womanhood. For the absent Lisa Cordles and Carla Ewert, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. As always, I want to leave you with the words of St. Augustine. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>